Uh, I would like to ask all of you to please be very respectful of our panelists, to hold your questions until the end. We will have a solid 20 minutes of Q&A for you. Uh, and in the meantime, please silence your phones unless you are, well, definitely silence them. Turn them off unless you are tweeting. And if you're tweeting, please use the hashtag TTF. Uh, before we get going, just one item of housekeeping. I'd like you to check underneath your seats. There are four lucky winners in the room who are going to receive complimentary passes to the Texas Conference for Women at the Austin Convention Center on November 15th. All right, lots of checking. Hopefully there's a golden ticket in the audience. <laughs> All right, folks. Maybe check for them quietly. I'm about to get started here. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to start by introducing two women, two public servants at the highest level in Texas uh, who have in their own ways broken glass ceilings and put women at the forefront in this state. Uh, Wendy Davis is a former state senator, former Fort Worth City Council member, and was the 2014 Democratic candidate for Texas governor. She made pink sneakers famous during her seemingly endless filibuster of Texas abortion restrictions. Uh, in March, she founded Words Not De sorry, Deeds Not Words, an online engagement initiative focused on women's rights, and that's a national initiative. She's also been on the campaign trail stumping for Hillary Clinton was at the Democratic National Convention. Susan Combs is a lifelong public servant. She served for almost a decade as Texas Comptroller, the highest ranking female in state government. Prior to that, she was Texas Ag Commissioner, the first woman to serve in that post, and she served in the Texas House. Most recently, Combs has formed the Anywhere Woman Project, a women's advocacy nonprofit, and is working to design an online networking platform called Herdacity. She's also the author of a forthcoming book called Texas Tenacity, a call for women to direct their destiny. Uh, so you are both, for fear of stating the obvious, Texas women who have really just risen to incredible levels in politics, in governance, in leadership. You have had wildly successful careers by, by any stretch. Do you owe it to Texas? Do you owe any part of your personal and professional success to the state of Texas? Well, I'll start by saying, I think Texas, when you're a woman growing up in this state, and I'm interested to hear how Susan feels about this, I feel like you have to grow up pretty tough because <laughs> it can be a scramble to make sure that your voice is equally heard. So I would say, particularly from my political experience, both on the Fort Worth City Council and in the Texas Senate, the effort that women have to undertake in order to be taken as seriously as their male counterparts uh, can be fairly extraordinary. And so in that way, it shapes you in a very powerful way. So yes, I suppose, though probably not for the right reasons, Texas has certainly helped me become a stronger person and helped me, I think, find the confidence that I found to fight for the things that I fight for. So for you, Texas has forced you to be strong by forcing you to overcome adversity. Yes, and I also had these great role models. Um, my maternal grandmother, who kind of embodies the spirit of Texas, right? That we are can-do people, that we work hard, that we believe in opportunity and our ability to seize upon that, that's a part of the Texas spirit. And I think a lot of young women would say that that has um, infiltrated their thinking and their um, mores. But I also think that they would say they've had to fight against the grain as well, uh, because this is a state that creates a climate for that. And in some ways, it's probably shaped them, uh, probably not as they wish it had, 
um, but it can be fairly strong training ground for a, a good, strong personality. So Wendy's story is an against the odds story. Uh, Susan, what's your take on that? Um, well, in my particular case, it was being raised in a ranching family, and that is where you face adversity from uh, weather, from pests, from falling prices, drought, et cetera. And uh, if, you, if your vehicle or your horse quit on you someplace, you had to walk a long way. And so I think uh, being raised in a ranching family, you just had to count on yourself always. And of course, being eight feet tall uh, was a help. Um, and I could sort of see things a long way. And you know, when you're really tall at 15, uh, you have a different worldview, literally. I mean, it's a little higher. Um, but I would say in Texas, I really do, this is gonna sound weird because I'm a, not a city girl, but seeing a long way always informed my view of the world. You could see a long way, you had a bigger vision. And after living in Manhattan for six years, I felt very constricted, very constrained. And so from that perspective, I'm lucky that I was raised in Texas with that large sort of mental and physical landscape. Uh, I want to start by talking a little bit about the Texas business climate, which a lot of people would say has, has been conducive uh, to some Texas women. Uh, it's a state where there's no income tax. It's a state that consistently ranks in the top 20 for women who own their own businesses. San Antonio has been ranked as the top city in the nation for female entrepreneurship. Uh, at the same time, while we have female mayors, while we have female university presidents, there are no Fortune 500 companies in Texas that have women at the helm. Is this a business climate that is conducive to women? Do women have unique opportunities here? I think. Yeah, I think I think they do. And I, but I would say I'm going to make two points. One is I think we have an overall climate that is not good for women. I will come back to that later. I would say from a business perspective, though, I think Texas does very very well for women. Uh, we can get a job. Our unemployment rate is about three points lower than the national average. You've seen women-owned businesses, women of color owning businesses. That's all terrific. But I, I really want to make the point, I don't think it's an R or D question. I think the climate about women, the disparaging of women, the, the not taking women seriously is something that I really worry about. And so when, when I was asked to be on this program, I thought this is great. So about the Fortune 500. That's going to be a cultural thing that we have to change. You've got Marissa Meyer, you've got uh, other folks, you know, leading large companies, but it's still that trying to rise up and trying to get into the C-suite or trying to get into the highest levels. And sometimes that's a cultural thing. I'm not supporting you, Wendy. I don't want you to do this. You don't want me to do this. The Queen Bee syndrome. I'm saying we have to change that. I really believe collectively that Texas is the right place the right people, the right passion and energy to do something about that. At the same time, obviously, Texas is a state where women still make 78 cents on the male dollar, where 30% of women, uh, working women in Texas are in low-wage jobs. More Texas women live in poverty than men. I mean, is, is this a state of opportunity for all Texas women or just some Texas women? I think it's very much a, a state of opportunity for a very few. We in cities across the state, I think, do an extraordinary job, and the state does a reasonable job, too, on providing the use of tax incentives to support women and minority-owned businesses. San Antonio obviously doing an extraordinary job of that, and that's why you see them ranked as high as they are in that regard. 
But that's such a small piece of the pie for women in this state. And when you look at what's happening here, and I'll take a little bit of an issue with Susan on whether this is a Democrat or a Republican issue, Susan sees through a lens that I know is extremely objective and fair. But that's not necessarily the case for a lot of statewide and other elected Republicans in this state. And I know from experience, fighting to pass the equal pay law in Texas, the unbelievable challenge that came in doing that, ultimately, and literally without a vote to spare, I was successful in getting that through the Texas Senate with a lot of help from Symphonia Thompson, who chairs, of course, the calendar committee in the House, and had it not been for the pressure that she could help put on some senators whose bills were stacked up in the calendar committee, I don't think we would have accomplished it. But ultimately, we did pass an equal pay bill, and then Rick Perry vetoed it after he was pressured by some companies who felt like this was going to expose them to a real problem. So Texas is one of the few states that hasn't passed a Lilly Ledbetter type equal pay law. Um, and we also, as you said, Emily, we have so many women that are working in the minimum wage work field here. And Texas is one of the states that has lagged behind a conversation about lifting up the minimum wage. We know that women are two-thirds of minimum wage workers in this country. And unless and until we lift up that minimum wage to at least the $15 mark, women aren't going to have an opportunity to realize their best potential, particularly when childcare is as, exp as expensive as it is. If you are making minimum wage as a woman, it simply doesn't make sense to be in the work world or to put your foot on the path of higher education and try to improve your earning capacity when you are making less than the cost of quality childcare would be in this state in order to allow you the opportunity to, to realize your full potential. And it hurts all of us. It doesn't just hurt the women who are impacted by that. It hurts the economy of this state, plain and simple. Susan, is equal pay something that should be legislated at the state level? I mean, you can't obviously account for Rick Perry's veto, but, but did you support it? Um, I think I obviously support equal pay for equal work and have done for a long time. I think whether or not it passes legislatively is something that I don't have a crystal ball. But let me talk about child care. That's very interesting. All of us uh, have had kids. And I get a lot of looking at that. It, it's of concern uh, to Wendy's point that if you have folks uh, and they don't have access to child care. So I took a look. There's been a report from somebody. Uh, about child care expenses based on the median wage of a particular state. And Texas is 18th from the bottom, meaning it's relatively inexpensive. New York is number one, and their median wage is 53000 as is Texas's. And if you have two kids, it's 48% of your income. And Massachusetts is 47%. And I would just say this, is that when, when I had my first child and first job, I did pick a job that I did not have to have after school extra after stuff because I did the calculus. How much will I need to put out for childcare expenses based on my salary? What can I do? And uh, that was why I was an assistant DA. They had regular hours and I could get home about 5.30 or quarter of six. I think we do need to value women's role as parents. And Anne-Marie Slaughter has a great TED Talk. 
And she uses the phrase, she says, we need to re-socialize men. There was kind of a gasp from the audience, and I thought, oh, that's really exciting. Well, what she really meant, what she really meant was men should feel empowered as they do to stay home. And I think one of the important things for us is to give women flex time. You, you know, Freddie or Mary, your kid gets sick. We need to say families first. And if you don't have a future workforce, you don't have a workforce. And so I think doing things like that's really important. And I would say um, this poor guy, this, you know, the, the victim being re-socialized. I was talking to two guys the other day, and I said, would you like to stay home? Now, they lit up. They got really excited about it. And they had girl kids and they had boy kids. They weren't thinking about, oh, I gotta go take a little Freddie fishing or whatever sort of so-called masculine product. They wanted to spend time with their kids. And people are now opting for flex time. They want, you can find employers who I think say, I want you to know this is a family-friendly workplace. We want you to be here. We want you to take time off. And I think that's gonna be extraordinarily important. And people will opt for those employers. I'm gonna, I want to ask you both about your specific role as women in <clears throat> politics, but I do want to pin you down on the equal pay issue because you deflected on that a little bit. I mean, that is something that the state should legislate or not. Should it be legislated or not? Equal I th pay. I think any state can legislate that. Should Texas legislate it? I, I think if they don't think that there is adequate equal pay statutory authority, they should look at it. And the question is, is there adequate st equal pay statutory authority? If the question is how long you have to file on a case, I think they'll take a look at that. But there is, for state employees, there's already some authority for that. And then under the non-discriminatory clause, uh, there is uh, obviously protection for that. I think uh, this is a real interesting question for me since I've gotten on and off of career escalators. I have opted to work for less money on purpose in order to stay home with my children. I've gotten back on. For what do you say to the 35-year-old female who is never going to have a kid and she says, I don't want a child, but I want to go ahead and stay here and work versus somebody who, is not going to, who will not be there for that evening? I think this is one of the toughest woman-to-woman -woman issues out there. I don't think it's a man-woman issue. I think it's a woman-to-woman -woman issue on equal pay at this point because for those of us who have had kids, you do pay for it in some sense having children. And I think that's a real, a real challenge. If I can jump in a little bit on that. So the National Women's Law Center just released a report not long ago about how Texas ranks in equality of pay. Not Texas in particular, but all states. Right. And Texas was ranked as one of the weak states on this issue because we only have two protections in right. place. Susan just mentioned both of them, one for state employees, and one which is a clause that says you can't be discriminated against if you try to file some sort of a claim on this issue. But the only state that ranks even worse than us, and this, of course, harkens back to what Ann Richards used to say from time to time, thank God for Mississippi. <laughs> it's Mississippi. <laughs> Um, so when, when you think about that, we have a lot of ground to gain here. And I hate that it has become a, an issue that is divided on partisan lines. It doesn't make any sense. And I think every woman in this state, Republican or Democrat, ought to be with full force supporting making sure that women have remedies when they're paid, when they're underpaid. And we don't have a remedy in this state. The whole point behind the Lilly Ledbetter law 
was that under the statute of limitations that's in place right now, if a woman does not discover within the first two years that she's being underpaid, and keep in mind, in a climate where employers will tell you, you can't share what you're making with each other. If she doesn't discover it within the first two years, too bad. Even if 20 years later, which was similar to Lily Ledbetter's experience, she finds out that she's been dramatically underpaid her entire employment history with a company, she has no cause of action now because it's her fault she didn't figure it out within the first two years. So that's what other states have started passing, and Texas is one of the few that has not. That is the bill that Governor Perry vetoed, so that if you're a woman in this state and you discover two years and one day that you are being underpaid, and even if it's absolutely the case that the company was discriminating against you, and even if that can be proven, too bad, so sad. So, this shouldn't be something that, that any woman believes is a good idea because we're not talking about a state enforcement. We're only talking about giving women access to the courthouse so that they can enforce this for themselves. And I hope that we'll, we'll all keep pushing for it because it, it makes great sense. Why are there so few women in Texas politics? I mean, the Institute for Women's Policy Research gave Texas an F grade this year for women's participation in politics. Texas ranks 29th for the percentage of female lawmakers. Uh, you know, Susan, you've talked a little bit about the challenges of sort of being apparent in this political space. Why are there so few women at the highest levels of politics in Texas? Well, I think it's, I would say a couple of reasons. One is I would say Texas is a state that's had two women governors. New York and Nevada and California, you've never had a woman governor. Um, we're a very large state, and one of the things I do think is tough is if you have been a city council member, as many women are doing these jobs, which is sort of the, the, the bench, the farm team for getting up, then they decide, can I go from uh, Tyler, can I come into Austin, what do I have to do? Women do bear the uh, disproportionate share of the home obligations. I was able to run for office here because I lived in Austin and I could come home and see my kids. And I, when I talk to women, I'm encouraging women to run. I would like them to run. Deeds, not words. Uh, you know, obviously Wendy's pushing that. I think it's important. I think you need to be engaged in politics. Politics is where you decide who gets what. And it's all about sort of divvying up stuff or, or imposing uh, restraints or constraints on things, I think we should. I think we should, but I think we need a better support system of some kind that says, okay, Myrtle, uh, you're from Alpine or you're from someplace and you're gonna have a six hour drive from Alpine into Austin and you may have some children. I think it's individual more than it is sort of uh, systemic. I never, when I ran for Ag Commissioner, people worried that nobody would ever elect a woman. I never had a single human ever suggest that I could not be ag commissioner. They might not have liked what I said or did, but it wasn't because I was female. Um, and I think I never, I literally never experienced it. And, I, and I'm not joking when I say the height made a difference. I was at Love Field uh, and some guy walks up to me and he says, uh, are you Susan Combs? And I said, yes. Yeah. You know what? I didn't know your head was up so high. 
Well, I mean, if you're six feet four in heels, you are hard to miss. And so I don't know that I can understand being 5'8 or 5'9, but I'm saying I'll fight for every single woman who wants to run for office. I would encourage them to run. I would hope she gets a support group. Texas Federation of Republican Women is a great support group. I think it ought to be a desirable thing to either be active, be in the process, because this is where lots of things happen. Wendy, what's the climate like in the Capitol for, for female legislators? I mean, I was on the Senate floor with you one day when one of your male colleagues said publicly after you were speaking, I have trouble hearing women's voices. Yeah. Yeah, by the way, that guy needed his ass kicked. Give <laughs> <laughs> uh, me his phone number. It's, you know, it's a tough climate. I. I I have so much to say on this topic, I sort of don't even know where to begin. But Just say that but, again. Yeah. But I, I, think, I think the most important um, challenge that women face in the political environment, and it's particularly acute in this state, there is a standard by which we are viewed that says we've got to rise above and prove ourselves twice as much as most men who decide they're going to run for office. Some of that is socially conditioned within us, and so we question our own capacity to run. And there are a lot of great organizations, Annie's List, of course, here at the state level, who are really trying to break that cycle and help women see themselves as future office holders. But I think a lot of women look at what happens to women in political campaigns, and they say, hmm, I don't think I want to subject myself to that. And my run for governor is a perfect example of that. What's happened with Hillary in this particular campaign and in her entire public service career models that for women. I was subjected to this absurd criticism for whether I was a good mother while I was trying to pursue my educational opportunity. And of course, if I'd been a man, I would have been celebrated for the accomplishment, not criticized for it. So we women face a headwind and a standard that is really challenging. But to the point that Susan made, no one ever questioned whether she should be ag commissioner. I can tell you from our focus groups that we did in my gubernatorial campaign, there were so many women who believed <clears throat> that women were fine as House members or city council members or school board members or state senators even, but when you ask them about women occupying the executive office, women said, no, I, I, I just don't think that's the appropriate even role with the for legacy? a woman. Even with that, well, it's been so long, I guess a lot of people have forgotten what a phenomenal governor she was. Um, but, but there is this, mm -hmm this societal headwind to break through as well about the way we as women view each other, the way we're treated mm -hmm. once we put ourselves on the line. And I think we've got a lot of work to do to make sure that we give young women the confidence to believe that they should enter, they absolutely deserve to be there. Texas has only about uh, just under 20% of our offices are mm -hmm. held by women, even though we're more than 50% of the population in this state, 
And it's no wonder that when you look at where we rank in women's health and women's pay, women's occupation in the Fortune 500 companies here, women's placement in the legislature, there, you know, there's no, of course you can't question why we have that climate when you don't have women representing the perspective of women on the Texas House and the Texas Senate floor in the capacity that we, we ought to be. Well, I, I want to make a kind of a, a, a cultural point again. And if in the focus group the women say, well, women can do A, B, and C, but not D, E, and F, that's obviously problematic. But I want to talk about, I want to commend the Tribune uh, for having equal numbers of women and men. Uh, Editor-in-chief is a female. But when you take a look, and this is going to be dangerous territory, but when you take a look at 65 to 70 percent of the graduates in journalism and communication are women, comma, comma. The national average for women in communications and newspapers is 37 percent. The New York Times is 31 percent. The Wall Street Journal is 40 percent. The Chicago Sun-Times is 55 and a half percent. You've got the Dallas Morning News is 40 percent. The Statesman's about 37 percent. And the San Antonio Express News is 28. So my question is, Miriam Edelman says, if you can't see it, you can't model it. If, if women's voices are not being heard with a very deep bench in journalism, a deep bench, there's not a pipeline problem. There's all kinds of women. And I'm saying it is in California, it's in New York, and it's reprehensible. And why the hell don't we have more women in the newspapers telling story, bringing their voice, being heard? If you're not writing for newspaper X, how the heck are you being heard? I've modified it from hell. But how the heck are you being heard? <laughs> and I, I, I'm, I feel very concerned about it. I really well, do. I'm grateful to have you here lobbying on my behalf. Never <laughs> <laughs> away. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to I transition to talking about, about health care and women's access to health care broadly in Texas. You know, obviously, if you have resources, there are phenomenal uh, health care facilities here, MD Anderson, some of the best cancer care in the world. If you are a poor woman, it's a different story. Unless you get pregnant, you're not likely to be covered by Medicaid. Um, you know, this is a state where, that still has some of the highest uninsured rates in the country. What are we doing to care for sick women in Texas? Not much. Um, this is the issue that I think should be an alarming one for all of us. The report that just came out not long ago that talked about the dramatic and very alarming increase in women's um, maternal mortality well, in this it. state. William, mine. Yeah, right. Women are dying here at a higher rate uh, in pre pregnancy related than in most other industrialized countries. That's right, and in the last five years, that number has doubled. In 2000, I think it was um, eight, there were 72. 72, and now there were 180 something. Um, so there's a real problem there. And it's a multi layered problem. There's no question about that. It's hard to point at any one thing to say this is the cause. But there's no question that when you look at the first year where the spike really occurred, which was 2012, which followed, 2011, when this legislature, and this, this should make all of us so angry, because this is where politics is trumping humanity, trumping what should be our consciousness about taking care of each other. In 2011, specifically aimed at hurting Planned Parenthood, the Texas Republican-led legislature 
cut from the state funding that was going to family planning and contraceptive care over $70 million because they couldn't just kick Planned Parenthood out of the federal women's health program and keep everybody else in. They said, okay, we'll just get rid of the women's health program altogether and said goodbye to the 30 plus million dollars that we were getting for that. And very quickly, almost 80 or even some estimates over 80 clinics closed. None of them were providing abortion. And the clinics that remained open, a lot of them could only see about half of who they were seeing before. So what do we expect to happen when women lose their health care? Anecdotally, I saw or had a conversation with a neonatologist in San Antonio about two years after all of those cuts occurred. And what she told me was that in her office, she had seen an incredible spike. And I don't think anyone's done a report on this yet. She had seen an incredible spike in the number of birth defects that were occurring particularly to women in low-income areas of the state, particularly in the Rio Grande Valley, where these were women who had diabetes that was undiagnosed in their pregnancies, and their babies were being born with severe birth defects as a consequence of that. Women now who have the least capacity financially to care for additional family members at all, never mind a very high needs child. So this is, this is the consequence of these decisions so that politicians can step back on their heels and say, well, I voted against Planned Parenthood today, so there. Now you can elect me because they feel like they've got to feed a particular voting base and they are willing, literally, to let women die as a consequence of that. It, it, it should make us all so upset. Um, it makes me, obviously, very upset. And I, I am hopeful that at some point this state is going to say, we care enough about this issue that we're going to stop voting at 31%. We're going to show up to the polls, and we're going to make our voices heard in this, and we are going to reject politicians who are doing that. I want to just, so the, the research so far on this maternal mortality issue has, has not actually directly linked the, the cuts to women's health care to these women who are dying. They actually have, uh, there's not enough research yet, I think, they, to show that. You know, they have said they think it's linked to preventive, access to preventive care, which is one of these issues, um, mental health care, you know, in addition um, to, to some drug abuse issues. But, I mean, Susan, if, if you're a woman in Texas and you're pursuing your constitutionally protected right to receive an abortion, is this a good state for you? Well, I think the maternal mortality issue with the report, which I have read, um, and let me back up, I'll get to your question in a second, but if you go to look at the chart, in 2007, there was something that really caught my attention. Black women's death rates went up in seven, eight, nine, and 10. No other group did. And then it went up again in 10, and I asked why one group more than any other group. And I think if you're, these, these deaths occurred, most of them 60% after 42 days post-event. And what I'm concerned about is when you have a population that needs Medicaid and you don't have enough psychiatrists on, then the report clearly pointed to missed opportunities to send women for behavioral issues, et cetera, because the number one cause of those deaths was cardiac, number two was opioids. And then the New York Times had an article, I guess it was two days ago, talking about the 
um, problem with sort of obesity in our state, and that's something I worked on for a very, very long time. I will also add on prevention. Eduardo Sanchez was the Commissioner of Health in 2002, and he and I went to the Capitol, and we tried really hard in the 03 session to get a bill passed about how we feed our kids in schools because of the surge of childhood obesity. He convinced me then, I believe today, that public health and prevention is not only the smartest thing to do, it's the most humane thing to do, rather than relying on medicine at the back end. But you've got to get doctors and everybody into the program. And when you have now a drop of 33 points that only 37 or 34 percent of physicians in the state will take all Medicaid patients, and this number is replicated across the country, it's not very good. So if you have a health delivery system for prevention, which does not have enough psychiatrists and not enough behavioral health folks, what do you do about that? And well, so, but a lot of those women aren't even on Medicaid. I mean, you know, obviously Texas exactly. has not expanded Medicaid under the Federal Affordable Care and, Act. And I, and I would, I would say this: I'm, I'm not a fan of Medicaid. I am an absolute, relentless fan of access for healthcare. So I'm now on the board of something called It's Time Texas. We've signed an MOU with the UT System Population Health, David Lakey. One of the things we're talking about doing is instead of asking for people who are somewhat busy to go ahead and go to a website that may not have internet, pushing information out. We have not done a very good job, I don't think, in any state of contacting people and getting them to understand what their health opportunities are. I'm meeting with Commissioner Kaufman of the uh, Department of Protective Regulatory Services on Monday, and we're talking about foster care kids who've aged out. They don't know what their services are. My point is, if we have folks who do not know what their options are, find a better, innovative way to get them to where they need to be. Well, I, my response to that, though, is there is no better place for so many people to go in this state because we don't have Medicaid expansion. And that report on maternal death rate particularly pointed to the fact that for women in Texas, by the way, if you're an adult woman in Texas, the only time you can be covered for health care under Medicaid is while you're pregnant and six weeks post-pregnancy. They found that this maternal death rate and the number of deaths that were occurring past the end of women's health care on that Medicaid was fairly high. Mm -hmm. And so if we're talking about making sure that we care for the people of our state and we have an opportunity to bring money in from the federal level, which, by the way, is 90% of the cost and we would only pay 10%, and by the way, has been shown would have an incredibly dramatic stimulating effect on our economy, why the hell are we not doing it? We're not doing it, again, because of politics. Because of politics. So we, we have smart things that we could be doing. We could be delivering more health care. And I really appreciate the study that you're working on, but there are, what are you going to say to these women? And a lot of the problem with people not knowing where to go for their health care right now is that the safety net for women was absolutely shredded in 2011, and the Republican-led legislature said, we're going to replace it. We're going to create all these other new places where women can now go and receive their care. 
Well, first of all, why do it when women knew exactly where to go for their care? They knew to go to Planned Parenthood clinics, and they knew to go to other clinics as well that closed as a consequence of that. And then the state said, with our $16 million budget that we have for women's health in this state, you know what we're going to do with it? We're going to give $1.6 million of it, the second highest recipient of state money in this last budget, to a women's crisis pregnancy center that, of course, is not focused on delivering women's health. It's focused on making sure that women don't have abortions. How in the world is that improving women's health in the state of Texas? <laughs> yep. I, I do want to get your take on this, because in, previously in your political career, you were pro-choice. You are now pro-life. Yes. Um, uh, tell me your perspective on you know, this state for women seeking access to abortion. It is the law of the land, and it needs to be available. That's, it's the Supreme Court has spoken on it, and it is the law of the land. I'm, uh, the bigger issue of all access, I think women and men and children ought to have access to health care every place. And I, uh, I ranch out in the Big Bend, and I am 46 miles from the nearest hospital, and so I'm very aware that not everybody has close medical care. But I think the key thing also is for women to be um, supported by each other and to be assisted and say, all right, you need some help with this. How can we help you get the help that you need? And I am pro-life, so I'm not a fan of abortion, obviously, but I'm a fan of women. And I support women. And I hope women uh, will do very, very well in the state. And I think, by and large, and I'm going to come back to the economics, I think, by and large, we do very well. Why else do 40,000 net new women move to the state every year. And a lot of them come from California. So it's, it is not one issue for every woman. There's lots of issues and jobs and cost of living and where I can live and have gasoline. Those are very important for a lot of women as well as the issue that Wendy raises. I want to flash forward to the November election and I want to talk about whether your respective choices for president would be good for women in the United States. Obviously, Susan, you are supporting Donald Trump. Um, Wendy, we know that you're supporting Hillary Clinton. Can you both give me your take on what your candidates would mean for the state, for women in particular? <laughs> well. Um, okay. Um, I'm, I will confess that I don't think we have two of the most fabulous candidates. That's my, my view. We had 17 in ours, and you all had two, and that was a hard fought. What I think bubbled up was a very weird um, conversation about the direction of this country. People on all sides of, the, of both aisles really said there's something deeply wrong here, and so there was a lot of, uh, I'll vote for the next guy or Bernie Sanders or Mr. Trump who can shake things up. That said, if Mrs. Clinton wins from the, from the economy side, I do not think she will be good for Texas. Um, I think Mr. Trump has an unfortunate habit, I was the co-chair for Carly Fiorina, of not being particularly polite in public about women. But I'm, I'm also focused a lot of times on the economic issues. Can you, can you live here? Can you get a job here? Can you have an apartment or a home here? And so I think both of them are going to be a, a mixed bag for Texas, but I have been, I was a public official for the um, Republican Party for about 20 years, and I have voted every time for the 
nominee of my party, and I expect that I will do that in November. So are you, you holding your nose and voting for him? I am going to do what I have done in the past. Senator, you're up. It's a ringing endorsement of Donald Trump. <laughs> um, you know, I, I can't even fathom the idea. I have a five-month-old granddaughter. I know you have a seven-month-old daughter. I think about this in the context of how this next president is going to lay the foundation for her future. And there are so many layers to that. I'm supporting and traveling and doing surrogate work for Hillary Clinton, not because I believe she's the lesser of two problems, because I think she's going to be an extraordinary president. And particularly, particularly when it comes to women. Starting from the simple premise of, we've never had anyone who occupied the Oval Office who understands what it means to live the experience of being a woman in this country. And all of the layers that go into what it will take for us to realize full equality here. And that full equality is multi-layered. We're almost 100 years from gaining the right to vote, but we still have so far to go because we don't have equality of pay, which is something that Hillary, of course, has said she will continue to push forward as president. We don't have family leave policies that work for men and women in this country, as do every other industrialized uh, country, and Hillary has talked quite a lot about the work that she wants to do to make sure that we realize that goal. She has been the first presidential candidate I've ever heard talk about and elevate the issue about the affordability or the lack of affordability of child care, quality child care in this country, where, by the way, in more than half of our states in this country, child care is more expensive than mm -hmm. college tuition. These are things that she has said she will champion. And not only that, she has been unabashed, unashamed about her support for re women's reproductive health care, including abortion care, including ending the Hyde Amendment. So when we're talking about will Texas women benefit under a President Hillary Clinton, you bet they will. And not only that, but she, of course, understands the breadth and depth of what it takes to make sure that women are a full part of the economic picture. And she has spent a great deal of her public service career working on that particular issue. So do we have something to gain if she's there? Yes. Will she be good for the Texas economy? I want to take a little bit of issue with what Susan said. Absolutely. She is talking about creating the largest infrastructure investment program in this country that we have seen in decades. And as a consequence of that infrastructure investment, those are good jobs. And in fact, when you look at where the women-owned businesses in Texas are, they're in the transportation arena primarily. And then finally, this person will have, we know, one appointment to the Supreme Court will perhaps have two or three appointments to the Supreme Court in their presidency. And we're going to live with the consequence of this for decades, not just during this presidential term. Donald Trump has said in no unqualified terms that he will make an appointment or appointments who will be committed to rolling back Roe v. Wade. 
So right now, we women of means know that we can always access abortion care in this country, but even for us, potentially, that right will go away. And we certainly know what Donald Trump's attitude is about women with the misogyny that he has continued to display fully and unabashedly throughout his entire life, but also, of course, as part of this public, uh, this public campaign that he's engaged in. I would invite you to watch the video that the Hillary campaign put up called Our Daughters and give real thought to the messages that they hear from this man. This is not a president I want my granddaughter to grow up listening to and to believe that that's who she is. Okay. Um, we are going to go ahead and open it up for questions. Do we have, I don't know if we have mics out there in the audience, but if you want to. Um, Stand up and, and form lines. Side aisles. Okay, microphones on the side aisles. Please go to those microphones and whoever's there first. Yes, ma'am, go for it. Hi, so this is a question for Davis first. Um, the Affordable Care Act allows adults to stay on their parents' health insurance till 26. This allows me to have health insurance for the first time in my adult life. However, the explanation of benefits are sent to my parents. So if I go to Planned Parenthood to get contraceptive, my parents get a notification of that. Now, <laughs> that is an issue. Other states have passed laws that ban health insurers from sending healthcare information about their adult children to their parents. So what are the chances of Texas passing a law like that? Well, if, if you look at Texas law right now in terms of women trying to access abortion in this state, even when they've been the victim of incest and whether parental notification has to take place, I think it doesn't bode well on this particular issue. But does it make sense that that ought to be the law? Absolutely. And I'm glad you know about it. I hope you'll push for it. And I'd be happy to help you organize around the issue in this upcoming legislative session. Yes, sir. Hi, my name is Justin Atkinson. I'm a student at UT Austin. And so we're at a panel today called, Is Texas Good for Women? Yet we have no women of color, trans women, um, queer women uh, speaking. So. I, I, my question is, is, um, is Texas good for those communities, those marginalized communities, and then what do you do on a daily basis to kind of advocate for those groups? Is Texas good for marginalized communities, um, women of color, uh, trans women, uh, lesbians? I mean, you know, for marginalized groups, is Texas a good place for? I think it's an interesting place. I think from uh, for, for women of color and small also not business, a I think I know. I think it does very, very well for women of color in the business sector. Uh, we are women-owned businesses. We're number two behind California. Women-owned employees, number two, number two in revenue, and uh, we our, our growth in women of color, women-owned businesses uh, from 2007 to now is up like 63 percent. We're number three. So from the business side, I would say yes. I think. The issue with respect to various conversations we've had, there'll be another conversation this afternoon. I would say that it is, uh, it is not easy, and I cannot say that it's particularly good. I don't know that it's bad, but I don't say that it's good. Well, Emily, of course, is going to be uh, leading a panel shortly on the conversation about transgender bathrooms in this state. Um, is Texas a good climate for women in those categories? Absolutely not. Um, there are a number of lawmakers who are chomping at the bit to file legislation similar to that of North Carolina, 
I was just in North Carolina, by the way, and they are reeling from the economic consequences of that particular law. And here Texas goes to follow right along suit with it. And I hope we're going to have the same reaction from the private sector that North Carolina saw when, when they passed that ri ridiculously absurd law there. Also, of course, we know that we have lawmakers in this state, including our governor, who have said they're going to continue to push against marriage equality, and they're looking for every way they can to continue to deny that full uh, equality to all people that live in this state. So is the climate for women who live um, outside or within the margins of our state good? Let, no. me, let me add that I fully support marriage equality. Is that, is, that a new, is that a new position for you? Uh, it's, it's one that developed in the last 10 or 12 years. Okay. Uh, and I am, since you brought that up, I do want to ask you actually your take on the transgender bathroom issue. I mean, obviously you care about the business climate of this state. Is this something that you think the legislature should be pursuing or not? I, I think this is not a should, should you be able to go to the bathroom or not. I guess I sort of don't know how you make it work if you've already got a two bathrooms, I don't know the logistics of making it work. It seems to me that people can make things work, and I'm now seeing lots more bathrooms which are just sort of anybody can use the bathrooms. You may end up with sort of, you know, some kind of people can get into bathrooms. I think, I read about a Navy SEAL last week. He uh, is transgender, female, and a TSA person really mistreated her very badly. And it was awful. And so I, the bathroom issue, how to do it, I have no clue. I do want people to have a safe place to go to the bathroom. I think in high schools it gets very problematic. I think there's some practical issues that have to be addressed. And I don't have a clue how to do it. All right, I want to make sure we get enough questions here. Sorry. Go ahead, ma'am. Hi, ladies. My name is Ana Lopez, and I'm vice president of Students Against Campus Carry at the University of Texas at Austin. <laughs> 